The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. I invite you, if you have your Bible, to open it up to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 3 this morning, starting at Philippians 3, starting at verse 12. Well, as you may have noticed when you came on campus this morning, our courtyard looks a little bit different. Uh, We discovered on Tuesday that, first off, apparently we get like hurricane force winds in Morgan Hill. And secondly, huge pop-up tents could be a great substitute for a parachute, in case you were wondering. So our team scrambled mid-windstorm to disassemble that because I w- we have hundreds and hundreds of pounds of anchors, and we were sure that if we didn't do something, it would first take out our roof and then end up on Monterey Road, neither of which were great options for us as a church. So, But in the process of taking it down, there was damage in the windstorm, so we're getting it repaired. We should have it back up by Easter but just in case you're wondering, like, where is it? So thank you for squeezing in on this lovely Seattle morning that we have. I don't, I don't know what's going on again, right? Like, we had a few, a few good days of weather, and now we're back to, to the Northwest. So, um, so our, uh, our youngest daughter, um, this last, just over a week ago, actually, turned six months old. Um, and so she's growing quick. And if, if you have kids, you maybe remember this stage. And if you haven't had kids, just a little heads up if you ever do, the first like five to six months of your kid's life feels like rotating doctor's appointments, right? Like you feel like you're always there for something. And if there's ever any complications, it means like cancel your next three weeks of fun because you're just going to be at the doctor over and over and over again. But for the regular checkups, they always measure specific things and they compare them first to how they were before last time you saw, and then they put them on this really cool chart that shows you, like compares your kid to the national average or whatever. And so the the things they always measure, they, they first measure the length of the child, they measure the weight, and then they measure the head circumference, right? And it's so funny as a parent, you're like sitting there and they're weighing your kid and you're like, please have gained weight, please have gained weight. And then you're like, wait, it's the total opposite when I go to the doctor, right? Like step on the scale and you're like, oh no, what's that number gonna say, right? But for your kid, you're like cheering him on, gain weight, right? Why do they measure those three things? Because simply put, those are marks of a maturing and healthy child. Right, And if suddenly you go and your child isn't growing, right, or they're losing weight or something like that, it's a marker that, hey, something maybe is at root and your child is not maturing, they're not growing like how they should. And they are clear markers that doctors have that are easy to track and follow to make sure your child is growing and healthy. What I want us to think about this morning are what are some markers like that for us in our spiritual walk with God? What are some markers in our walk with Jesus that say, hey, is this true of me? Because if this is true of me, that most likely means that, that I'm heading the right way, that I'm not arrived yet, and we're going to get, and we're going to see that real quick, but that I am growing, I am maturing, I'm walking with Jesus as he desires as a follower after him. And today, Paul shifts in this passage in Philippians chapter three to really highlight this need for us to to grow in maturity in Jesus and some things that we can look for in our own lives as markers of spiritual maturity, of spiritual growth in this life as we journey towards Jesus. So let's start together in Philippians chapter three, verse 12. He says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This first marker of maturity that Paul highlights in this passage is a passionate pursuit of Jesus. That Paul characterizes that his life is characterized by a passionate pursuit after Jesus. The language that I hardly even need to highlight it, it comes on so strong as Paul describes his own journey towards Jesus, right? He twice says that he's pressing on. It's this, this idea of whatever obstacle is in the way, it won't stop him. He's not going to be dissuaded. His pursuit continues to grow and, and it continues to happen. This is a good reminder in seeing Paul's language here as he talks about spiritual growth and maturity and following after Jesus, that spiritual growth doesn't happen by accident. Spiritual growth, spiritual maturity doesn't happen by accident. I had a professor in seminary who used to say this, no one drifts towards holiness, No one just naturally ends up in our lives looking like Jesus. You can think of it this way. You can think of your life and your spiritual life as kind of like you're on a tube float, right? You're on a tube float and it maybe isn't fast flowing. It's not a white water trip, but but the river is moving. And the river is our world. Our culture is leading us somewhere. Our own sinful selves, even though we may be followers of Jesus, we all still have a sinful flesh. Our own hearts are leading us somewhere. And if we just naturally go with the flow of our world and our hearts and our own desires, we will actually be going away from God. And so in some senses, spiritual maturity is taking out the paddle and paddling upstream from everything our hearts, our world is pushing out against us and following and pushing passionately pursuing after Jesus. Now, when we think about this passionate pursuit of Jesus, the thing about passion is passion is something that comes naturally when something is new and fresh, but passion is often hard to maintain over a long time. Right? Passion is, is easy when, when it's fresh and it's new and it's alive, but over lengths of periods of months of years, it's hard sometimes to keep that same passion in our hearts. It's worth reminding ourselves, Paul writes these words, and two things are true of him. First, he's now been following Jesus for decades. Right? This is not someone who just met Jesus last week and it's like, yeah, Jesus, let's go. He's awesome. This is someone who's nearly been killed multiple times for Jesus. And let's also remember, where does Paul write this letter from? Prison, right? This is someone who has experienced hardship, has experienced obstacles, but it hasn't relinquished, it hasn't quenched his passion to pursue after God. So how do we, how do we keep this kind of passion in our lives? How do we keep this desire to follow after Jesus? I think from Paul's own description of his own spiritual journey, there's three things that help us keep this kind of passion alive in our own hearts that he, that he highlights in his own spiritual journey. The first is this, the first key to keeping passion alive is to realize that you haven't arrived. Realize you haven't arrived in your spiritual walk. None of us, this side of heaven, will maintain full spiritual maturity. None of us will ever achieve perfection this side of heaven. See, nothing kills your spiritual growth like thinking you don't need it. 
right? If you don't think you need to grow, you're not gonna grow because you think, well, I'm, I'm better than I used to be, so that's good enough. And a good enough attitude would never characterize Paul. He said, well, I'm, I'm not what I used to be, yes, but, but I'm not where I could be, and I'm not where I wanna be. I, I'm not there yet. And he understood, look at that twice, right? I'm not already perfect. I do not consider that I have made this yet my own. See, such a huge question when it comes to keeping passion in our lives is, are we teachable? Are you a teachable person? It's such a key element to spiritual growth because here's this amazing thing for following after Jesus. The riches of scripture will never be exhausted. They'll never, you'll never be like, oh, I, I've, I've, got, I've done the Bible. I've gotten all I can get out of it. There's no more to get. No, 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 go back and keep reading because you haven't, right? The riches of scripture will never be exhausted. Our knowledge of God will never be full and complete. We will never be like, oh, I've got God down. I understand him perfectly. Just as how even if you've been married to the same person for years and years and years, there's still new and fresh things to learn and to grow and to discover. Some of you are like, they're becoming harder to discover. They're still there. There is always more of God to learn, to grow, to understand to discover. And it certainly is true when we have some accurate self-reflection that our application of the truth of scripture to our lives is never complete, right? We, we should, as we realize what God has called us to as followers of Jesus, see regularly where we are falling short and continuing to fall short. Now, it's easy to say in theory that we are teachable, but what about in practice? Is, is this seen and evidenced in our lives? I think we should all, if we have this kind of teachable spirit, if we're realizing we haven't arrived, we should all, if we were asked the question, what are you learning about Jesus? And what are you learning about how God wants you to live in light of who he is? All of us should have an answer at the tip of our tongue. And if someone were to ask you, what are you learning about Jesus and how God is calling you right now to live in response to who he is and what he's done for you? If we have to stop and be like, gosh, I don't, I have to really think about it. I think it's probably because we're not pursuing Jesus with that same passion. We're not having that humility and seeking to learn. We've, we've maybe thought, you know, I've, I've, I've done enough. I've kind of arrived in my spiritual life. But there's always more to learn. There's always more to grow in our walk with Jesus. So first we have to realize that we haven't arrived. The second way to, to continue this passion is to practice forgetfulness. I said that correctly. Practice forgetfulness. Notice what he says. But one thing I do in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, by forgetting, practicing forgetfulness, it's not that we're saying we just don't learn from our past experiences. That's stupid. We've all seen people and we've all been guilty of making the same mistakes over and over again. He's not saying at all then. But, but I think there's a twofold, a twofold thing here that Paul is, is thinking of that we can grasp in this. First is that we don't live in light of who we were before Jesus, that we can forget our failures that once defined us. That doesn't define us who we now are in Jesus Christ. What you once were does not dictate in Jesus who you can become. Maybe you were an alcoholic. Maybe you had a porn addiction. Maybe you were a workaholic. Whatever your sin of choice is that is true of one of us, like that, that is who we were, but that doesn't have to be who we are. 
And let's not define our lives by the sin that once defined us and that entangle us. Jesus hasn't just come to make us better. He came to make you a brand new creation. And in him, there is growth. And we can forget our failures. We're not held back by who we once were and the sin that entangled us because Jesus has freed us from that. We don't have to live that way any longer. So we can forget our failures, but I think we also at times need to forget our achievements. We need to forget our own achievements. Or if you remember... If you were here last week, Paul's just coming off of in earlier, just a few verses before, kind of highlighting his spiritual resume. And he was doing it, we talked about this last week, to show the emptiness of legalism and it's no efforts from our own. But it's a good reminder that right before he talks about forgetting what lies behind, he just highlighted in verse seven and eight, he said this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's saying, yes, I I may have achieved great things at one point in my life and God may have done something great in your life and you may have been used in a certain way, but let's not rest on that as, okay, this is now what God has done and my life is no longer to be used by God in incredible or great ways. He's saying, no, anything can be lost in comparison with knowing Jesus. We don't need to be Christians who are always living in the past on what it used to be like in our lives. Or what Christians so often tend to do is what Christianity used to be like in the world. Oh, I remember when church was like this. Sometimes Christians remind me, I don't know if you remember the movie, it's already almost 20 years ago. So it's popular when I was a teenager. But remember that movie, Napoleon Dynamite? Remember Uncle Rico, who was like this middle-aged man filming clips of himself playing football out in the field. He still was living in his high school years and he was like 40 years old. It's like, dude, you're living in your past. Like, oh, we would have won state if coach would have. It's like, get over it. Like we get, you were a good football player. Some Christians are kind of that way. Man, I remember when Christianity used to be more respected and we're we're like, we want to go back to the glory days in our minds of Christianity. And we forget that the best days for us as Christians are still to come when we see Jesus face to face. It's not what our world maybe once was or what the culture once was. And if we find ourselves thinking, oh, I remember what church, I remember what this country, I remember what Morgan Hill, I remember what this or that used to be like, don't don't just live in the past of what it used to be, but forget those and look forward to what Jesus has for us. Which is the third way to keep this passion in our hearts is to set our eyes on the prize. To set our eyes, set our eyes on what is coming for us. He, he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We just read it before in verse eight. He says that in order that I may gain Christ, what is the prize? What is our pursuit? What is it that our eyes are focused on as Christians? Well, it's, it's Jesus. It's that he is the prize. He is the pursuit worth running after. And this language of of pursuit is athletic imagery. And it reminded me of another passage in which Paul uses athletic imagery to describe the Christian life and the Christian journey. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Or as the author of Hebrews put it, that we run the race with endurance and we set our eyes on Jesus, that we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, I've had the privilege a few times of being exposed to to athletes who are at the top end of their level of competition. If you attend church here for for any length of time, you know I love to ride bikes. My motivation on riding bikes is kind of twofold. Number one, it's because it's fun. And number two, it's like, so last night I can eat a bowl of ice cream and still fit in my jeans today. Like that, that's why I like to ride my bike, right? There's other people though who are different. I actually was at an event last weekend and got to meet the top US women's mountain biker in the country. She lives and trains in Palo Alto. She's a world champion. She represented our country in the Olympics. We did an event. I came and I took a nap the next day. She went out in the rain and rode 45 miles the next day. There's a difference in mindset, right? I'm like, this is fun. I can eat dessert and not get too fat, right? And she's like, I wanna be the best in the world, Right? There's a different focus. There's a different mindset that happens with what you are straining towards. What is the primary pursuit and passion of your life? Is it Jesus? See, if it's, if it's a yes to anything else, then it's a no to following after him. And let us not be so distracted by the things of this world that our eyes are taken off of that prize to which we should be pursuing after, and that's eternity with God and what Jesus has done for us. So Paul is making every effort, pushing forward to reach this growth, this passionate pursuit of Jesus, I pray, continues to be true of us in our hearts and in our lives. And one of the things that that I pray about, I've been following Jesus for over three decades now. One of the things that I try and pray regularly is, God, would would you keep that passion alive in my heart? Pray that God would continue to give you a passion for him, a passion for his word, a passion for growth. Make it a regular prayer request in your life because it's when that passion for him continues to come that we see growth in our lives. The second, the second marker of maturity we see in this next start of the next paragraph, as Paul says this in verse 17, brothers and sisters would be included, and that's a broad reference. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The second, the second marker of spiritual growth and of spiritual maturity is that we have a desire for discipleship, a desire in our lives for discipleship, to grow and to see others grow into a full knowledge of Jesus. That phrase is fascinating. Both of those are such powerful phrases. Join in imitating me and I love the second part. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So notice what he says. Your eyes are on the prize. They're looking to Jesus. And what's one of the ways to help you focus on Jesus? You look at others who are focused on Jesus and you watch how they live their lives. And as you watch them and how they live their lives, you too will grow. That's an astonishing phrase in verse 17 when Paul says, join in imitating me. It pauses me to pause and reflect, is my life worth imitating? Is your life worth imitating? Because the reality is this, the people around you and the people closest to you are learning from you. And whether you signed up for it or not, they're imitating you in many ways. And when they imitate you, are they becoming more like Jesus or not? 
See, thinking about this desire for discipleship, I think is, is twofold. First, it's the, this idea of, am I being discipled? Am I growing in my own walk with Jesus? Am I having people in my life where I can look to, not just like from afar off, like, oh, I saw them across the courtyard on Sunday. Yep, that's what they're wearing to church. That's what I'll wear to church. No, it has much deeper implications than that. Are you intentionally, intentional relationally so that you are positioning yourself to learn and grow from others who are more mature or are walking with God as well? Are you brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you just showing up? You see other people, you say hi, you talk about some surface level things, and then you leave. See, don't be thoughtless by the people that are close to you in your life. Be intentional in your relational development as a follower of Jesus on who's close to you. Now, I know for a lot of people, Sometimes they're like, man, I would, I would love to be discipled by someone. I would love to have someone either my age or maybe a little bit older than me who's wiser, more mature that I could, I could learn from. Now, how, how, do I, how do I have that happen? Sometimes it just happens naturally, but more often than not, I think it happens intentionally on our behalf. Now, here's how not to do it. Don't go up to someone, especially if you don't even know them, but don't go up to someone after church today and say, hey, can you mentor me? Can you disciple me? That's like, uh, that's intimidating and weird and scary. Like, um, no, like that's weird. But you know what you could do? I have found my entire life that even the most godly mature people still have to eat food every day. Most of the time they drink coffee. There may be spiritually mature people who don't drink coffee. I haven't met any of them yet. So I'm just kidding. Maybe apologies to all you tea drinkers out there who I just offended. But here's the thing. Don't go and say, hey, can you disciple me? Just go to someone maybe that you look up to, respect, have met some and say, hey, can we just grab lunch or breakfast sometime? Can we grab coffee at some point? And just sit down with them. And in your mind, maybe just have one or two questions just to ask them about their life. Don't be awkward. Don't come with a big, long list of things. And it will go really well, probably. Why? Because naturally, all of us love talking about ourselves. It's true. You love talking about yourself. It's true. We all do. And when someone comes and asks us something that they feel like we know more, we actually enjoy it. The other person learns from it. And then you know what you do in about another month or so? You say, hey, that was really fun last time we did it. Can we get another thing on the schedule again and maybe grab lunch again? Or if it doesn't go well, just find someone else and be like, hey, can we grab lunch? Or maybe you intentionally ask a few different people. But be intentional about the people that you are spending time with in your life. Look to be discipled, that there's others around who are, who are further along in their walk with God than you and seek to learn from them, learn from their wisdom and what God has taught them. So the first question to discipleship is, am I being discipled? The second is, am I discipling others? As Paul says, join in imitating me. Am I intentionally pouring my life out into relational investment with the people around me? And I want to think of a few different ways that this happens. First and foremost, especially since we are predominantly a younger church, by no means only, but there's a lot of us here who have kids. Parents, are you being intentional in the discipleship of your kids? That as a parent, you are the first and foremost disciple of your children, not the church, not Pastor Sean. He is great as our programs and day camps are. God has given you and he's given me as a parent that responsibility. Are you being intentional about it? Shani put together, I think it was Shani put this together a year or so ago. If you have a newborn, you have 936 weeks with your kid until they turn 18 and leave the home. These weren't gumballs for Ian, in case you were wondering. Like, is he having snacks during church? Right? Each of those balls represents a week 
from the time your kid is born to the time they will leave your house at 18. When they turn nine years old, it's halfway gone. It's 416. The time is going quick. When they start high school, as a freshman, it's down to 208 weeks left before they turn 18, graduate, and leave the house. Are you being intentional? Maybe you haven't been, but you still have 100 weeks left, or maybe just 20 weeks left, however long it is till kids leave for college. Maybe you're on this side and you still have hundreds of weeks left with your child. Be intentional about the time, about the discipleship, about pouring not just good things, good morals, but Jesus into their life and help train them in the way of Jesus. If you're younger here and you don't have kids, are you still pouring out your life in relational development for others? There are actually kids here and the coolest people in the room are you because you're cool, you're hip, you're like five years older, 10 years older than they are. And they're like, that is the coolest person in the world. Here's a hint, in 10 years, that won't be true anymore. So take advantage of it now. Show up, you can still be a model and a discipleship to others, even if you yourselves are not 30, 40, 50 years old, even in your teenage and 20s, you can be poured out, you can be discipling others. One of the huge blessings of our church is that we are an intergenerational church, and there are many of you here who are older. I just want to gently remind you this morning, there's no retirement in the Christian life. We don't retire from making disciples. It's a lifelong assignment that God has given to every single one of us. And there is so much wisdom, depth, and maturity from so many believers in this church. How do I know? Because I've gotten blessed to learn from so many of them. Are you being intentional and using the years of wisdom, the years of journeying with Jesus that you've had to pour out onto that next generation, to come alongside and encourage and help equip those who are coming alongside or coming after you? The amazing thing happens when we are looking to be discipled and discipling others is I found in my life so much of the spiritual growth that I've experienced happens when my life is poured outwards and focusing on investing in others. That when you focus your life on helping disciple others, what you'll find is you'll learn if almost just as much, if not more, from the people that you're trying to pour your life into. And so is your focus relationally intentional on others, helping others grow and yourself growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are we being intentional in our desire for discipleship in our lives? The third marker that that Paul has here in this passage for us is found in the last part of chapter three. It says this in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, many of them walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The third marker of spiritual maturity and growth in our lives is that we live with a focus on the future that our hearts and our eyes are set not just on the immediate, the things of today, but our focus is on eternity and the future. There is an obvious contrast here that Paul brings up and is playing out, right? Between this earthly mindset and a heavenly mindset. And look at the characteristics of someone with, with this earthly mindset. 
right? They're seen as enemies of the cross of Christ. We shouldn't see these if you've been journeying with us as some of the people he has referenced before. This is probably a, a different group. Right? Their end ultimately is what? It's, it's destruction because they're following after their own selfish desires. They're not submitting their lives to the way of Jesus. Their God is their belly, not meaning that like they literally worship their stomach. But what it means is that whatever desire would come up in their lives, that's just how they live. Right? This is kind of this description. Does this not describe the culture and the world that we live in? Right? Their God is their belly. Whatever they want, that's what they're going to do to try and make themselves happy. That's the world that we live in, is like these people here with this earthly mindset. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. This describes someone and what happens to our lives if we live for ourselves for today and just to fulfill our own physical and selfish desires in the here and in the now. But contrasted with this earthly mindset, is the heavenly mindset in verses 20 through the end of the chapter into chapter chapter four. And he says that he introduces it this way. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong to the earth, but actually we belong and we live somewhere else. Now I introduced this concept over a month ago when we started the book, when we talked about Philippians. So I'm sure you remember that, but in case you didn't, a refresher for you. Philippi was a prominent Roman area. It was unique in Roman history. And if you were a part of Philippi, you were proud that to be raised and born in Philippi meant you were a Roman citizen. And it was a source of pride. Someone was proud of their citizenship. And he's playing on this natural idea of pride in where they live, of the citizenship that belongs to them because of where they're from. And says, but your true citizenship, where you should really find roots, find belonging, find identities, not in Rome, but in heaven. And he's playing on a natural pride that would have been true of the whole congregation and saying, no, our true citizenship, our belonging is actually in heaven. And notice what we await. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who instead of our end being destruction, what is now our end when we follow Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How? By the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, because we see this future, because the hope, the certainty that we have in Jesus, we can stand firm in the Lord with whatever would come our way. See, we need this kind of focus on the future in the Christian life to to continue to follow after Jesus. Now, this is not some like pie in the sky living. This is not like some person who walks around and is like clueless, like, oh, everything's fine. Jesus is coming back someday. I have no worries in the world. I'm like, what kind of life do you live? You have no worries in the world? What are you talking about? Like, this is not just some careless, mindless approach to life. But what, what he's talking about here is when our future, when our focused thinking is on the future, not on the present, it changes how we live today. When our focus is not just on today, what I want, what I need, what I have, but our focus is on eternity, it changes how we actually live in the present. This principle we could think of and apply to every area of your life. This is true spiritually, but if you practice this principle throughout your life, you will be better off for it. If you're a student and your focus is on where your studies will take you, not just on what assignment you have to finish today, you will be a much better student in the long run with that end goal in mind of what you are pursuing. Have you ever been in a dating relationship where suddenly you have a future in mind with this person? 
Suddenly you're like, oh, this could be more than just a fun time together. Maybe there's something here. And a future goal with this person, suddenly it changes how you live and operate in the moment. Some of you have these huge career goals that that you want to achieve, that that you have given to you. When you have these career goals for yourself, what does it do? It it impacts the decisions you make today because you're targeted, you're aiming towards something. You don't wanna just stay where you're at, but you have a goal of where you want to be someday. Future thinking leads to focused living today. Is our focus on this kind of living for Jesus in the future or just short-term today? See, we live in an instant gratification world, right? Anything we want, we can have at any moment. And that kind of thinking leads to an earthly mindset where we just fulfill our own desires. We live life for how we want to live. Or when we have long-term thinking, it actually leads to true joy in life as we follow after Jesus. So, so what, what are some signs? What, what's some areas to think of? Is my life focused on myself instant gratification, or am I thinking long-term? Am I focused on the future, focused on Jesus with how I live my life? These are kind of cliche, but I think they're so true. We talk about this a lot in church, but there's two good areas to see our hearts on this, and it's how you spend your time and your money. How you spend your time and how you spend your money. How you spend your time, you don't get more of it back. It's a resource that is limited to every single one of us. And how we spend our time reflects our values. And if we're wasting time or spending time in sinful living, it's showing that our focus isn't on Jesus and it's revealing things about our hearts. Money is such a test for us, not because of money, but because it shows where our hearts, where our values lie. And if we look at our finances and it's focused on instant gratification, what I want, what I need, it's not looking to Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And we're not thinking long-term with the resources that God has blessed us with, not just for ourselves, but for the work that God has in the world. It's revealing things about our hearts as well. That we should be focused on the future and pursuing after Jesus. I love the the intense language that Paul uses to describe his own journey, his own desire to pursue after Jesus. What I love the most is this little line that he throws in in that first verse that we read in verse 12. I want to close with looking at it again. Verse 12, not that I've obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own saying, why do I give every effort in this life? Why do I pursue Jesus with all that I have? Why? Because God has already made me his own in Jesus. See, all of this, all of this effort, all of this of what he calls you to is not to achieve salvation. It's not to do enough so that God will accept you. But it comes from this rooted foundation that Paul goes back to and says, hey, when we understand that Jesus has made us his own, we can pursue him with all we have. And until we get that, until we get the, hey, Jesus has made me his own, and we marvel at that, we won't have this kind of growth in our lives. So let's marvel together what Jesus has done for us. God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have made us your own. We were undeserving We were guilty sinners when Jesus came and demonstrated his love by dying for us. God, I pray that this passionate pursuit after you would be true of every single one of us here this morning. 
God, would you open our eyes to the things that perhaps are holding us back? God, and if there's people here this morning who, who have seen that passion dwindle in their life, God, today, would you reignite that passion for Jesus? Would you reignite that desire for discipleship to learn from others and to teach others with our very lives on what it looks like to pursue and follow after Jesus? God, our hearts are so prone to look to the things of this world. Would you pull our eyes off of today and onto the future, onto Jesus, onto the hope, the sure hope that we have because of who he is and what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.